Welcome everyone, this is Russ Galsel, Chronicles of the End Times. So glad to be with you today as we continue our study and our talk on Armageddon. And today we're going to look at some of the scriptures. It is the War of Wars, Armageddon, with all the nations of the world involved, and eventually the Lord Jesus Christ and the armies of heaven confront them all. And when we look at these scriptures, we can say, wow, you know, it's pretty violent. So why would God do this, right? We might ask ourselves that as we're studying this. We're thinking in our minds, this isn't the God that I know, the God that I've come to know, or the God I hear about. We're going to take a look at this phrase, the cup of iniquity. We find it first in Genesis chapter 15. So as we look at this scripture and in this story, this period of time in history with Abraham, and the Amorites. It gives us a little insight into, once again, how merciful God is and how he wants people to turn away for their sin. Just like when he sent Jonah and he didn't want to go, he sent him to Nineveh, and Nineveh actually repented. And they were doing a lot of atrocities and horrible things there, but they turned to God and God forgave them. We just want to paint the picture of what we're looking at here as we move towards the Battle of Armageddon. We don't need to justify God. God will always do justly. We know that. But sometimes in our humanness, you know, these things come into our brain and we're like, wow, I don't know, how, how do I justify this? And so for our sakes, not for God's, but for our sakes, let's take a look at this. And the cup of iniquity is just a measurement of the sin that either individuals or a nation, or in this case, the world, has reached in the eyes of God. In Genesis chapter 15, God is talking to Abraham, telling him that he's going to give him the land of Canaan. He promises the patriarch that the territory would belong to him and his descendants, but he said not yet. And in this vision, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, the Lord shows Abraham the suffering, actually, that his people are going to go through in the bondage in Egypt for 400 years. And if I was Abraham, I'd say, gee, God, you know, why do they have to go through this? Why in bondage for 400 years to the Egyptians before we can get this land that you're showing me here that's really, really cool? It's beautiful. So God gives him the answer. I'm going to start with verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, No, for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The land that's being occupied, this land of Canaan, belongs to the Amorites. And the reason that God's not going to drive them out right away is because he's going to give them another 400 plus years to repent and turn away from their sin. So what are the Amorites doing that is so terrible in the sight of God? Well, first, they're worshiping demons. They have the Lord of the mountains they worship, and they also worship the Lord of the desert. In their worship ceremonies, they do horrible, terrible things not only to their children, but to each other, and all types of immoral practices that just heap more and more sin and fill this cup that God calls the cup of iniquity. But he's going to give them all these years to repent. But as it turns out, 
they don't repent. So as Israel comes into the land under Joshua, their leader, he takes the land back and many are slaughtered because the cup of iniquity had filled up. And we see that all through the Bible in individual lives. We see it in Ananias and Sapphira. When they came, they came to Peter with this offering. They said they sold their property and this is all their money. And I'm sure that many of you are familiar with that. And they lied to the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And they both died. They dropped dead. The uh, husband first and then the wife later on. And we may look at that and say, wow, you know, that's pretty awful. And God just like so unmerciful there. But we don't know their lives. We only have a little tiny window We don't know all the details behind it all, but God does. But we're living in a generation that approves of many things God has told us is sin and many things that God said will hurt our eternal souls and damage our eternal lives. And yet we're moving forward. We are actually legislating these things, giving stamp of approval and encouraging this type of activity. That's where we live right now. And that's just a little prelude to all the things we're going to see in this study about the Battle of Armageddon. That at this point in the world's history, and we're looking now into the future, and we don't know how far into the future, right? It could be five years, 10 years, 20 years, we don't know, but it's close. The cup of iniquity of this entire world filled to the top and begins to overflow. And God looks at it and says, it's enough. In Matthew 23, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, fill up the measure of your father's guilt. Their fathers had persecuted and killed God's prophets down through the years, and God had restrained his wrath. But Jesus is telling them, go ahead, fill the cup. And so we have this reference, and we know that in 70 AD, the hammer fell, and Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The temple was torn down, and millions of Jews were slaughtered by the Romans. God's the only one who could measure the cup of iniquity. And when it is filled and when it is overflowing, we cannot. We cannot measure it in the people we know, we cannot measure it in our nation, and we cannot measure it in the world. But we know that it is filling. We can look around us and see it so. And it's not just in one area, it's in many areas. And that's how we know we're coming to the end. Sin has been in the world for a long time. It's no mystery to anybody. But we're looking at a different situation today where the governments of the world are legislating sin and saying all these things are good. There's nothing wrong with them. Live your life. The scripture clearly says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We have to be careful. You and I can make those decisions every single day, and it won't affect the world. It'll affect our world, but it won't affect the world in general so much as when a nation legislates it. And in the case of the tribulation period, we have the devil himself ruling and reigning in the form of the Antichrist, and we know that he's killed millions of believers, of Jews and Christians alike, all those who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the cup of iniquity is no doubt filling and overflowing completely. And so this is where we are as we move forward. So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 24. See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for the priests, for the people, for the master and the servant, for the mistress or the maid, for the seller or the buyer, for the borrower or the lender, for the debtor or the creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. 
There is a day of judgment coming. Every major religion in the world, whether they are a little bit off or a lot off in their doctrine, they all have a day of judgment. Everyone seems to recognize the fact that it's coming. We all have different views on how it's coming or why it's coming or who's going to be the winner and who's going to be the loser in all these different religions throughout the world. But they all clearly state a judgment day is coming. And here Isaiah is laying it out. Let's read on. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws and violated the statutes and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, the earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. And all the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is still, and the noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. We have to remember what has been going on here with Babylon, right? Not only in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, people have just been partying on. Remember what it talked about the two prophets, and that when they finally died, God said, okay, you know, you can come home now. You can, you can kill the two prophets, because up to that point, they hadn't been able to touch them. But when they die, they leave their bodies laying there in the streets, if you remember that. And they actually party on like no other party this world's ever seen. For three days, they party like crazy people because these two prophets that have just been nothing but a thorn in their flesh and calling down fire from the sky and everything else upon those who have turned their back on Christ, they're finally dead. But of course, we know that after three days, they rise from the dead and go up into heaven. So just kind of just painting the picture here of how evil the world is at this time. So let's continue to go forth. No longer they drink wine and sing songs. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All the joy turns to gloom. All the gaiety is banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins. The gate is battered to pieces. So it will be on the earth among the nations, as when the olive tree is beaten, and when the gleanings are left after the grape harvest. Now I want to take us down to verse 18. It said, Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit, and whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. The floodgates of the heavens are open, and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is thoroughly shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion. Wow. That kind of says it all. The earth is the Lord's. He created it for us. He created us for us to enjoy it. All the things we see and all the beautiful places there are in this world to go and to visit and to see. The mountains and the seas and the beaches and the valleys all these beautiful places throughout the world that we enjoy. We enjoy seeing either in person or we see them on the big screen or whatever. It's gorgeous what God has done. Every tiny thing is for us. Jesus has to come back because the earth is destroyed. First destroyed by sin and then by the wrath of God. So the battle of Armageddon is not just about destruction, although there's plenty of it. It's about redemption. Not only of those who follow the Lord, but redemption of the earth itself. In Romans 8:20, 20, 
Paul tells us that for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The whole world, God's creation, his world, all his work, his great creativity, the beauty that he's created, it hurts him that he has to destroy people. It hurts him that he has to destroy some of his creation. God is not cold-hearted. Far from it. His heart is great. It is wide. It is deep. Relationships are a two-way street. He's not going to handcuff us to the throne of God and say, you will serve me. That's not how it works. Just like relationships in life, it takes love coming from both ways for a relationship to be established. So back to Isaiah 24. We're going to drop down to verse 21. Are you ready? In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings of the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. The moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem before its elders gloriously. That's the end game. But it's interesting, isn't it? that not only will the powers in the earth be punished, but God is going to punish the powers in the heavens above. That's talking about the prince of the air, Satan, and all his demon princes. God's going to round them all up when it's all over. There's another scripture in Isaiah that I want us to read, and I want us to understand the grace of God and the love of God. I know I keep talking about it, but it's very important we understand how both these things work together, the judgment of God and his grace and his mercy. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to God, for he will freely pardon him. And Jesus said in John chapter 9, verse 3, when he was talking about if this certain man, because he was blind from birth, if he was a sinner, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. These scriptures go together. What's Jesus telling us? He's telling us there's a time for harvest. There's a time for mercy. There's a time to show love and to pour out compassion. This is our time in which we live right now. In the midst of the darkness, Jesus rules and reigns, and we are the light and the salt of the earth. We study these things towards the end because we have to cherish the time we have now. The question that always comes up is how close are we? And I'll end with this. 60 Minutes just had an episode about China and how their Navy has now surpassed the Navy of the United States and how they are absolutely set on taking Taiwan back. And of course, the U.S., we say we're going to defend Taiwan if that ever happens. Now, we could only imagine what that would be like. So are the pieces in place? Of course they are. China is a very powerful nation. Russia is already at war. Israel is a nation and set in place. The technology is all there for the mark of the beast. It's only the grace of God 
that is holding everything back, nothing else, because he wants to see people come and to know his son, Jesus Christ. In our next podcast, we're going to continue to look at this battle, and we're going to go beyond it. We're going to see the victory. We're going to see the wonderful things God has for his people and for this planet and how it's going to be renovated, the life that we're going to be having. And let's talk a little bit about these glorified bodies that we're going to inherit. God's got great stuff. God is an amazing, loving God. And he has beautiful things for us beyond anything we could imagine. I know some of these things can be difficult to study and to hear and to try to understand. But it's important that we know the fullness of God as much as possible from beginning to end. As much as he shared with us, we should learn and we should study. So until next time, this is Russ Galzo with Chronicles of the End Times. Keep looking up. The King is coming.